Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange, Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago, Chicago. I'll show you around. I love it. Bet your bottom dollar you'll lose the blues in Chicago. Chicago, the town that Billy Sunday could not shut down. Guess what tonight's subject is? Chicago. The word Chicago is thought to come from the local Miami, Illinois tribal language. The word was then Chicaqua which means wild onion or wild garlic. Chicago, home of the Bears, the Cubs, Mrs. O'Leary's much maligned cow, criminal bosses Al Capone and Bugs Moran, reluctant monster hunter Carl Kolchak, and Al Bundy, forever connected to Buckingham Fountain in Grant Park, and site of the wild and woolly 1968 Democratic National Convention. In 1871, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed an area about four miles long and one mile wide, a large section of the city at the time. Much of the city, including railroads and stockyards, survived intact, and from the ruins of the previous wooden structures arose more modern constructions of steel and stone. These set a precedent for worldwide construction. During its rebuilding period, Chicago constructed the world's first skyscraper in 1885 using steel skeleton construction. As I referred to Mrs. O'Leary's much maligned cow, the cow belonging to Mrs. O'Leary is often blamed in folklore for starting the Great Chicago Fire. And who, you may ask, is the Billy Sunday mentioned in the song about Chicago. William Ashley Sunday, born November 19, 1862, and died November 6, 1935, was an American athlete who, after being a popular outfielder in baseball's National League during the 1880s, became the most celebrated and influential American evangelist during the first two decades of the 20th century. 
And I'm sure the line that Billy Sunday couldn't shut it down may have had something to do with liquor and bars and things like that. So, we talk about Chicago. I can't mention Chicago without talking about a man named Herman Webster Mudgett, who lived from May 16, 1861 to May 7, 1896. He was better known as Dr. Henry Howard Holmes, or more commonly, H.H. Holmes. And he was an American serial killer. Not that we should really trip over ourselves to claim him. While he confessed to 27 murders, only nine could be plausibly confirmed, and several of the people he claimed to have murdered were still alive. He is said to have killed as many as 200, though this figure is only traceable to 1940s pulp magazines, probably for sales. Many victims were said to have been killed in a mixed-use building which he owned, located about three miles west of the 1893 World's Fair Columbian Exposition, supposedly called the World's Fair Hotel. It was informally called the Murder Castle later, though evidence suggests the hotel portion was never truly open for business. Besides being a serial killer, Holmes was also a con artist and a bigamist the subject of more than 50 lawsuits in Chicago alone. Many now common stories of his crimes sprang from fictional accounts that later authors assumed to be factual. In a 2017 biography, a man named Adam Seltzer wrote that Holmes' story is, quote, effectively a new American tall tale. And like all the best tall tales, it sprang from a kernel of truth, unquote. H.H. H. Holmes was in my opinion, rightfully executed on May 7, 1896, nine days before his 35th birthday, for the murder of his friend and accomplice, Benjamin Pitizel. During his trial for the murder of Pitizel, Holmes confessed to many other killings. Holmes was born as Herman Webster Mudgett in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, May 16, 1861, to Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate Page Price, both of whom were descended from the first English immigrants in the area. Mudgett was his parents' third-born child. He had an older sister, Ellen, and an older brother, Arthur, a younger brother, Henry, and a younger sister, Mary. Holmes' father was from a farming family, and at times he worked as a farmer, a trader, and a house painter. His parents were devout Methodists. Later attempts to fit Holmes into the patterns seen in modern serial killers have described him torturing animals and suffering from abuse at the hands of a violent father. But contemporary and eyewitness accounts of his childhood do not provide proof of either. At the age of 16, Holmes graduated from high school and took teaching jobs in Gilmanton and later in nearby Alton. On July 4, 1878, he married Clara Lovering in Alton. Their son, Robert Lovering Mudgett, was born on February 3, 1880 in Loudoun, New Hampshire. As an adult, Robert became a certified public accountant and served as city manager of Orlando, Florida. Holmes enrolled in the University of Vermont in Burlington at age 18, but was dissatisfied with the school and left after one year. In 1882, he entered the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine surgery and graduated in June of 1884 after passing his exams. 
While enrolled, he worked in the anatomy lab under Professor Herdman, then the chief anatomy instructor. Holmes had apprenticed in New Hampshire under Dr. Nahum White, a noted advocate of human dissection. Years later, when Holmes was suspected of murder and claimed to be nothing but an insurance fraudster, he admitted to using cadavers to defraud life insurance companies several times in college. Housemates described Holmes as treating Clara violently in an 1884 before his graduation. She moved back to New Hampshire and later wrote she knew little of him afterwards. After he moved to Moore's Forks, New York, a rumor spread that Holmes had been seen with a little boy who later disappeared. Holmes claimed the boy went back to his home in Massachusetts. No investigation took place and Holmes quickly left town. He later traveled to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and got a job as a keeper at Norristown State Hospital, but quit after a few days. He later took a position at a drugstore in Philadelphia, but while he was working there, a boy died after taking medicine that was purchased at the store. Holmes denied any involvement in the child's death and immediately left town. Right before moving to Chicago, he changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes to avoid the possibility of being exposed by victims of his previous scams. In his confession after his arrest, Holmes claimed he had killed his former medical school classmate, a Dr. Robert Leacock, in 1886 for insurance money. Dr. Leacock died in Watford, Ontario in Canada on October 5, 1889. Late 1886, while still married to Clara, Holmes married Myrta Belknap in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He filed for divorce from Clara a few weeks after marrying Myrta, alleging infidelity on her part, but the claims could not be proven and the suit went nowhere. Surviving paperwork indicated that she probably was never even informed of the suit. In any case, the divorce was never finalized. It was dismissed June 4, 1891, on the grounds of want of prosecution. Holmes had a daughter with murder, Lucy Theodate Holmes, who was born on July 4, 1889, in Inglewood, Chicago. As an adult, Lucy became a public school teacher and Holmes lived with Murda and Lucy in Wilmette, Illinois, and spent most of his time in Chicago tending to business. Holmes married Georgiana Yoke on January 17, 1894 in Denver, Colorado, while still married to both Clara and Murta. Holmes arrived in Chicago in August of 1886 and came across Elizabeth S. Holton's drugstore at the southwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in Inglewood. Holton gave Holmes a job, and he proved to be a hard-working employee, eventually buying the store. Although several books portray Holton's husband as an old man who quickly vanished along with his wife, Holton was a fellow Michigan alumnus only a few years older than Holmes, and both Holtons remained in Inglewood throughout Holmes' life and survived well into the 20th century. The idea that Holmes killed them is strictly fiction. Holmes purchased an empty lot across from the drugstore where construction began in 1887 for a two-story mixed-use building with apartments on the second floor and retail spaces, including a new drugstore on the first. 
When Holmes declined to pay the architects or the steel company, they sued in 1888. In 1892, he added a third floor, telling investors and suppliers he intended to use it as a hotel during the upcoming World's Columbian Exposition, though the hotel portion was never completed. Furniture suppliers found Holmes was hiding their materials, for which he had never paid, in hidden rooms and passages throughout the building. There were soundproofed rooms in mazes of hallways, some of which seemed to go nowhere. Many of the rooms were outfitted with chutes that would drop straight down to the basement, where Holmes had acid vats, quicklime, and a crematorium to dispose of his victims' bodies. Their search made the news, and investors for the planned hotel pulled out of the deal when a jeweler in the building showed them the articles. The hotel was gutted by a fire started by an unknown arsonist shortly after Holmes was arrested, but was largely rebuilt and used as a post office until 1938. In 1892, the hotel was somewhat completed with three stories and a basement. The first floor was the storefront. The second story consisted of his elaborate torture rooms, which contained a chute that led to the basement. The third floor held more apartment rooms. In 1894, some police officers inspected the hotel while Holmes was out. During the inspection, they found rooms with hinged walls and false partitions, rooms linked with secret passages, and even airtight rooms that were connected to the pipelines filled with gas, which Holmes used as gas chambers. Holmes would use chutes to deliver the bodies to the basement, and once there, he made use of surgical tables and an array of medical tools to dissect them before selling their organs and bones on the black market and to medical institutions. One of Holmes' early murder victims was his mistress, Julia Smythe. She was the wife of Ned Connor, who had moved into Holmes's building and began working at his pharmacy's jewelry counter. After Connor found out about Smythe's affair with Holmes, he quit his job and moved away, leaving Smythe and her daughter Pearl behind. Smythe gained custody of Pearl and remained at the hotel, continuing her relationship with Holmes. Julia and Pearl disappeared on Christmas Eve of 1891, and Holmes later claimed that she had died during an abortion, though what truly happened to the two was never confirmed. Another likely Holmes paramour, Emmeline Seagrand began working in the building in May of 1892 and disappeared that December. Another woman who vanished, Edna Van Tassel, is also believed to have been among Holmes's victims. While working in the Chemical Bank building on Dearborn Street, Holmes met and became close friends with Benjamin Pitizel, a carpenter with a criminal past who was exhibiting in the same building a coal bin he had invented. Holmes used Pitizel as his right-hand man for several criminal schemes. A district attorney later described Pitizel as Holmes's tool, his creature. In early 1893, a one-time actress named Minnie Williams moved to Chicago. Holmes claimed to have met her in an employment office, though there were rumors he had met her in Boston years earlier. He offered her a job at the hotel as his personal stenographer, and she accepted. Holmes persuaded Williams to transfer the deed to her property in Fort Worth, Texas, to a man named Alexander Bond, which was an alias that Holmes used. 
In April of 1893, Williams transferred the deed with Holmes serving as the notary. He later signed the deed over to Pitizel, giving him the alias Benton T. Lyman. The next month, Holmes and Williams, representing themselves as man and wife, rented an apartment in Chicago's Lincoln Park. Minnie's sister, Nanny, came to visit, and in July, she wrote to her aunt that she planned to accompany Brother Harry to Europe. Neither Minnie nor Nanny were ever seen alive after July 5th of 1893. Holmes had an entrepreneurial spirit. Based on his former medical education and his connections, he was able to sell skeletons to medical labs and schools. Quote, he and sometimes a hired assistant were accused of stripping the flesh off the bodies, dissecting them, and preparing the viable skeletons. The rest of the remains would be tossed into pits of lime or acid, effectively breaking down the remaining evidence, unquote. With insurance companies pressing to prosecute Holmes for arson, Holmes left Chicago in July of 1894. He reappeared in Fort Worth, oh, lucky us, where he had inherited property from the Williams sisters, located at the intersection of modern-day Commerce Street and 2nd Street. There, he sought to construct another castle along the lines of his Chicago operation, once again swindling a number of suppliers. In July of 1894, Holmes was arrested and briefly incarcerated for the first time on the charge of selling mortgage goods in St. Louis, Missouri. He was promptly bailed out, but while in jail, he struck up a conversation with a convicted outlaw named Marion Hedgepeth, who was serving a 25-year sentence. Holmes had concocted a plan to swindle an insurance company out of $10,000 by taking out a policy on himself then faking his death. Holmes promised Hedgepeth a $500 commission in exchange for the name of a lawyer who could be trusted. Holmes was directed to a young St. Louis attorney named Jephthah Howe. Howe was in practice with his older brother, Alfonso Howe, who had no involvement with Holmes or Pitizel or their fraudulent activities. Jephthah Howe found Holmes' scheme brilliant. Nevertheless, Holmes' plan to fake his own death failed when the insurance company became suspicious and refused to pay. Holmes did not press the claim. Instead, he concocted a similar plan with Pitizel. Pitizel agreed to fake his own death so that his wife could collect a $10,000 life insurance policy, which she was to split with Holmes and Jephthah Howe. The scheme, which was to take place in Philadelphia, called for Pitizel to set himself up as an inventor under the name of B.F. Perry, then be killed and disfigured in a lab explosion. Holmes was to find an appropriate cadaver to play the role of Pitizel. Instead, Holmes killed Pitizel by knocking him unconscious with chloroform and setting his body on fire with the use of benzene. In his confession, Holmes implied Pitizel was still alive after he used the chloroform on him prior to setting him on fire. However, forensic evidence presented at Holmes' trial later showed that chloroform had been administered after Pitizel's death, a fact which the insurance company was unaware of, presumably to fake suicide to exonerate Holmes should he be charged with murder. Holmes proceeded to collect the insurance payout on the basis of the genuine Pitizel corpse. Holmes then went on to manipulate Pitizel's unsuspecting wife into allowing three of her five children, 
Alice, Nellie, and Howard, to be in his custody. The eldest daughter and the baby remained with Mrs. Pitizel. Holmes and the three Pitizel children traveled throughout the northern United States and into Canada. Simultaneously, he escorted Mrs. Pitizel along a parallel route, all the while using various aliases and lying to Mrs. Pitizel concerning her husband's death, claiming Pitizel was hiding in London, as well as lying to her about the true whereabouts of her three missing children. In Detroit, just prior to entering Canada, they were only separated by a few blocks. In an even more audacious move, Holmes was staying at another location with his wife, who was unaware of the whole affair. Interesting word. Holmes would later confess to murdering Alice and Nellie by forcing them into a large trunk and locking them inside. He drilled a hole in the lid of the trunk and put one end of hose through the hole attaching the other end to a gas line to asphyxiate the girls. Holmes buried their nude bodies in the cellar of his rental house at 16 St. Vincent Street in Toronto. This home and address no longer exists, St. Vincent Street having long since been realigned into a part of Bay Street. Frank Geyer, a Philadelphia police detective assigned to investigate Holmes and find the three missing children, found the decomposed bodies of the two Pitazole girls in the cellar of the Toronto home. Detective Geyer wrote, The deeper we dug, the more horrible the odor became. And when we reached the depth of three feet, we discovered what appeared to be the bone of the forearm of a human being. Geyer then went to Indianapolis, where Holmes had rented a cottage. Holmes was reported to have visited a local pharmacy to purchase the drugs, which he used to kill Howard Pitizel, and a repair shop to sharpen the knives he used to chop up the body before he burned it. The boy's teeth and bits of bone were discovered in the Holmes chimney. Holmes' murder spree finally ended when he was arrested in Boston on November 17, 1894, after being tracked there from Philadelphia by the Pinkertons. He was held on an outstanding warrant for horse theft in Texas, as the authorities had become more suspicious at this point and Holmes appeared poised to flee the country in the company of his unsuspecting third wife. Following the discovery of Alice and Nellie's bodies in July of 1895, Chicago police and reporters began investigating Holmes' building in Inglewood, now officially referred to as the Castle. Although many sensational claims were made, no evidence was found which could have convicted Holmes in Chicago. According to Seltzer, stories of torture equipment found in the building are 20th century fiction. Holmes was reported to have said, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer. No more than the poet can help the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil one standing as my sponsor beside the bed where I was ushered into the world, and he has been with me since. No doubt. In October of 1895, Holmes was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Pitizel and was found guilty and sentenced to death. By then, it was evident Holmes had also murdered the Pitizel children. Following his conviction, Holmes confessed to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, Though some persons he confessed to murdering were still alive, and six attempted murders, Holmes was paid $7,500 by the Hearst newspapers in exchange for his confession, which was quickly found to be mostly nonsense. 
Holmes gave various contradictory accounts of his life, initially claiming innocence and later that he was possessed by Satan. His propensity for lying has made it difficult for researchers to ascertain the truth on the basis of his statements. While writing his confessions in prison, Holmes mentioned how drastically his facial appearance had changed since his imprisonment. He described his new grim appearance as gruesome and taking a satanical cast, and wrote he was now convinced that after everything that he had done, he was beginning to resemble the devil. On May 6, 1896, Holmes was hanged at Mayamensing Prison, also known as the Philadelphia County Prison, for the murder of Pitizel. Until the moment of his death, Holmes remained calm and amiable, showing very few signs of fear, anxiety, or depression. Despite this, he asked for his coffin to be contained in cement and buried 10 feet deep because he was concerned grave robbers would steal his body and use it for dissection. Holmes's neck did not snap. He instead was strangled to death slowly, twitching for over 15 minutes before being pronounced dead 20 minutes after the trap had been sprung. On New Year's Eve 1909, Hedgepith, who had been pardoned for informing on Holmes, was shot and killed by police officer Edward Jaburek during a holdup in a Chicago saloon. March 7, 1914, the Chicago Tribune reported that with the death of Quinlan, the former caretaker of the castle, quote, the mysteries of Holmes Castle, unquote, would remain unexplained. Quinlan had died by suicide after taking strychnine. His body was found in his bedroom with a note that read, I couldn't sleep. Quinlan's surviving relatives claimed that he had been haunted for several months and was suffering from hallucinations. The castle itself was mysteriously gutted by fire in August of 1895. According to a newspaper clipping from the New York Times, two men were seen entering the back of the building between 8 and 9 p.m. About a half hour later, they were seen exiting the building and rapidly running away. Following several explosions, the castle went up in flames. Afterwards, investigators found a half-empty gas can underneath the back steps of the building. The building survived the fire and remained in use until it was torn down in 1938. The site is occupied by the Inglewood branch of the United States Postal Service. In 2017, amid allegations that Holmes had, in fact, escaped execution, his body was exhumed for testing. Due to his coffin being contained in cement, his body was found not to have decomposed normally. His clothes were almost perfectly preserved, and his mustache was found to be intact. His body was positively identified as being that of Holmes with his teeth. Holmes was then reburied. In recent news, Jeff Mudgett, a U.S. lawyer, discovered that he is the great-great-grandson of H.H. Holmes. Mudgett has investigated and written about Holmes extensively. In a popular TED Talk, which I don't know what a TED Talk is, he also shares what many observers believe is a solid theory that Holmes traveled to England and committed the Whitechapel slaughters attributed to Jack the Ripper. Even more curious, Mudgett connected his lineage 
to Meghan Markle, who he says is a distant cousin. If Mudgett's theory proves true, that Holmes was indeed the prolific killer named Jack the Ripper, that would mean that Meghan Markle might share a bloodline with England's most notorious serial killer. More about Chicago. Resurrection Mary is a well-known Chicago-area ghost story of the vanishing hitchhiker type, a type of folklore that is known from many cultures. The urban legend is based outside of Resurrection Cemetery in Justice, Illinois, a few miles southwest of Chicago. Resurrection Mary is considered to be Chicago's most famous ghost. Since the 1930s, several men driving northeast along Archer Avenue between the Willowbrook Ballroom and Resurrection Cemetery have reported picking up a young female hitchhiker. This young woman is dressed somewhat formally in a white party dress and is said to have light blonde hair and blue eyes. There are other reports that she wears a thin shawl, dancing shoes, carries a small clutch purse, and possibly that she is very quiet. When the driver nears the Resurrection Cemetery, the young woman asks to be let out, whereupon she disappears into the cemetery. According to the Chicago Tribune, full-time ghost hunter Richard Crow has collected three dozen substantiated reports of Mary from the 1930s to the present. The story goes that Mary had spent the evening dancing with a boyfriend at the O. Henry Ballroom and at some point they got into an argument and Mary left. She left the ballroom and started walking up Archer Avenue. She had not gotten very far when she was struck and killed by a hit-and-run driver who fled the scene, leaving Mary to die. Her parents found her and were grief-stricken at the sight of her dead body. They buried her in Resurrection Cemetery, wearing a beautiful white dancing dress and matching dancing shoes. The hit-and-run driver was never found. Jerry Palis, a Chicago Southsider, reported that in 1939, he met a person who he came to believe was Resurrection Mary at the Liberty Grove and Hall at 47th and Mozart, and not the O'Henry or Willowbrook Ballroom. They danced and even kissed, and she asked him to drive her home along Archer Avenue, exiting the car and disappearing in front of Resurrection Cemetery. In 1973, Resurrection Mary was said to have shown up at Harlow's nightclub on Cicero Avenue on Chicago's southwest side. That same year, a cab driver came into Chet's Melody Lounge across the street from Resurrection Cemetery to inquire about a young lady who had left without paying her fare. There were said to be sightings in 1976, 1978, 1980, and 1989 which involved cars striking, or nearly striking, Mary outside Resurrection Cemetery. Mary disappears, however, by the time the motorist gets out of his car. She also reportedly burned her handprints into the wrought iron fence around the cemetery in August of 1976, although officials at the cemetery have stated that a truck had damaged the fence and that there was no evidence of a ghost. In a January 31, 1979 article in the Suburban Trib, columnist Bill Geist, interesting, Geist is ghost, detailed the story of a cab driver, Ralph, 
who picked up a young woman, quote, a looker, a blonde. She was young enough to be my daughter, 21 tops, unquote, near a small shopping center on Archer Avenue. To quote what the driver said, a couple of miles up Archer there, she jumped with a start like a horse and said, here, here. I hit the brakes. I looked around, didn't see no kind of house. Where, I said. And then she sticks her arm out and points across the road to my left and says, there. And that's when it happened. I looked to my left like this at this little shack. And when I turned, she was gone, vanished, and the car door never opened. May the good Lord strike me dead. It never opened. Unquote. Geist described Ralph as not an idiot or a maniac, but rather, in Ralph's own words, a typical 52-year-old working guy, a veteran, a father, a Little League baseball coach, a churchgoer, the whole nine yards. Geist goes on to say, the simple explanation, Ralph, is that you picked up the Chicago area's preeminent ghost, Resurrection Mary. Some researchers have attempted to link Resurrection Mary to one of the many thousands of burials in Resurrection Cemetery. A particular focus of these efforts has been Mary Brigovi, who died in 1934, although her death came in an automobile accident in the downtown Chicago Loop. Chicago author Ursula Bielski in 1999 documented a possible connection to Anna Marija Norcus, who died in a 1927 auto accident while on her way home from the O. Henry Ballroom, a theory which has gained popularity in recent years. Well, that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I thank you for being along for the ride. And be with me next week as we come back with another story or another group of stories for Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, which is listener stories that Aaron tells, mostly ghost stories. And on Tuesdays, we have Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show, where he reviews horror movies, different books, uh, things that he's written. And on Wednesdays, it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments, with me, Terry from Texas, where we cover just about anything you can think of. And on alternating Thursdays, or every other Thursday, however you want to look at that, we have Patrick Sean Jones with The Sandman Lullaby. We also have video productions on the first Friday of the month from Full Dark Productions, from The Witching Hour, and from Unexplained Cases. Also remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have an Apple or an Android, you can go to your app store, look for the RPA app. It's a black square with a blue eye right in the middle of it. You can't miss it. And you can download that app, install it into the device you uh, listen to the programs on, and that way you will not have to go looking for the programs. They'll be right there. Do that. It'll be a lot easier for you to get to the stories. That's about it. I hope everybody has a good week. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye.